Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I'm going to be talking to you about a, a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. What I want to do in the next you know, hour or so that we have is I want to talk to you about pathways by which positive emotion influence health and well-being. And I know many of you have heard about this sort of new interest in positive affect, positive emotion, positive health. We'll talk about that. I'm going to share with you data that shows that positive emotions are not just the inverse of negative emotions. They are different, and they have a character of their own. Then I'll talk with you about the extent to which we know that positive emotional states can be increased and maintained over time. And I'm also going to give you some tools to outsmart stress and the tools that you can use. So that's what I'm going to do. But to do this first bit, to talk about pathways by which positive mood gets under our skin and affects our heart and our immune system and so forth, I'll talk about something more familiar. This is where the science has tended to go on emotions and health, which is kind of interesting. It goes to really all the way back to early medicine. Early medicine, way, way back before people really understood about molecular biology or anything, it was really trying to understand what to, how you could eliminate illness or disease from individuals. You know, individuals seem to be okay, they're doing fine, and then all of a sudden they would get a rash or they would become ill, and they didn't understand it. And so they thought that maybe there were evil spirits. And so the early doctors were witch doctors or sort of medicine men who would expel, um, you know, somehow get these spirits out. There were shamans or shamans who would help do that. This was early medicine. Get rid of that. Or you might go and you would eliminate disease by using potions or various elixirs that would be made by an alchemist trying to get rid of this, this something that is taken over the body. Um, even Hippocrates, and this is so interesting because when you study Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic, you, those medical systems do refer to balance and various uh, ways of dividing people into pitta or um, you know, different types of humans. It's really interesting, and you see this in Hippocrates where they talked about many diseases being the result of negative emotions. So even back then, they were aware of something about these negative emotions. And the belief was that negative emotions somehow produced an imbalance um, in bodily fluids or humors. And they talked about phlegm as being associated with cold and wet. And if you know much about traditional Chinese medicine, they will also talk about people as being more wet. Um, that's related to arthritis, for example, and they will suggest those people might be more comfortable in drier climates, or they can work with, with your body to try to get you back in balance, even if you lived in San Francisco where in the summer the fog comes in and so forth. So it's really intriguing to see themes coming through even back, you know, literally hundreds of years. Now, mind-body research, when I started doing my research at the Stanford Research Institute, and I was interested in, in really trying to understand uh, mind-body medicine, we also totally focused on stress. My first studies were on stress and how it was associated with heart disease. 
and this concept of the type A personality or type A characteristics all come from that tradition. And these are just covers of magazines. This is a really common area of research. Now, just a little bit on stress, because people ask me, is, is stress always bad? And I'd like to share with you, I don't think it's always bad. There is good stress, and then there's bad stress. So let me characterize the two. These are important. Good stress is when you have a challenge. When you know, like, this is a little challenging. I've got my lecture. I've practiced it. I'm, you know, I feel like I can do this. You're all friendly. You know, we've been spending six weeks together. So to me, it's a little stressful, but it's a challenge because I think that it doesn't exceed my ability to, to do this. So it's a challenge, but it's a positive feeling. Here's an example of what would you call good stress, when the Giants won the pennant. And in fact, it's those games when you, you know, they win it in the ninth inning in the end. You, it was a great game. Now, if they lose, it's not such a great game. But when, it's so exhilarating to have that. And they will always remember for the rest of their lives that moment which is also, for me, very exciting when you see young athletes like in the Olympics. It's, you, know, you see someone at the one moment they will treasure for the rest of their lives, and you've experienced with them. So that's good stress. Now, bad stress is really different. This is where bad stress is where there's a threat. You perceive the stress, but it exceeds your resources for coping, and that endangers your well-being. So if you're on email and you go for vacation and you come back and suddenly, you know, you see hundreds and hundreds of emails and the dishwasher, you turn it on and it spews water all over the floor and, you know, the phone then rings and you need to leave town because someone in your family, that would be, you know, it, it gets to a place where you say, this is, this is more than I can handle. You become overwhelmed. And that is sort of the definition of bad stress. And it's increasingly common in our lives right now, as, as I'll highlight. Now, I want to talk with you, kind of bring this home to stress and recurrent heart disease. This is one of the more recent studies um, on looking at heart disease in women. Uh, and this was a study, it was a cohort of 292 women who were between the ages of 30 and 65. They were studied in Sweden. A friend of mine, uh, Katrina Orthgomer, did the study. And she followed these women for four and a half years to see what would predict their recurrent MI. And these, so these were women that had had either unstable angina, where they were diagnosed to have that really irregular heartbeat, or they'd had a myocardial infarction. And it's interesting that all of the women were, you know, they, they divided them into groups, and then they sort of overlapped. Like if a woman was married and working, she would make up both groups. So they, they, but they looked at marital status and cohabiting, which meant you know, living with someone as married, or working outside the home. When I first did work on women and health, I actually started studying women who worked outside the home, thinking that that was a source of stress. And Christina and I both had discovered in our studies that actually these sources of stress kind of wrap together for women in a really interesting way. And she also was studying women were married. Um, how many of you think the risk would be greater if you were just kind of looking at the effects of being married versus the effects of just working, not putting the two together? How many would say married, that that's a source of stress for women? How many of you would say working outside the home? More hands for the married. And um, indeed, you're right. Marital stress, and that was women who are married or cohabiting, but there's a lot of stress in the home. 
that actually elevated risk to about three times uh, not being married. Uh, work stress is associated with 1.6-fold. Now, what many of us experience, is, especially living in the Bay Area, is a little of each, which is really tough. And actually, a woman also from Sweden who studied that, Marianne Frankenhauser, was actually studying women's heart rate and blood pressure throughout the day and men's throughout the day. And what she found was very interesting, and she was studying women that uh, worked outside the home. And men and women, both their blood pressure and cortisol, which I'll talk about later, all start out kind of low. And then as the day goes on, and men's are a little bit higher than women, but it basically, as the day goes on, they both rise throughout the day when people are out at work and so forth. And then the most interesting thing happened around 5, 530. Uh, At 5, 530, everybody goes home. And the men, their cortisol and their blood pressure just kind of comes right down, you know. It just sort of like, whoo, like a lovely slope. I should have a slide of this, but you know this well. Guess what happened to the women's? It just hangs in there right at that high point until about 11 o'clock or so. And then it starts to slowly taper off. Uh, It's because women kick in and do their second job. And so I think that that's actually somewhat embedded in these data here because there's an added responsibility of of the home work that occurs in women's lives. And and then that is another lecture about how we need to really talk about sharing some of those you know, those tasks, because they're, they're important. But I just wanted to share with you just a little bit about this stress and how it can affect our lives. Now, when I talk about stress, now I'm going to make a bit of a shift, and I'll make this clear. I'm going to now, we talk about stress, but when we were studying how it affects us, it turns out that it translates into one or two variables or factors. One is anger, and the other is depression. And anger is, you know, when people get angry. They, uh, it tends to arise in situations that are perceived as unjust, and there are all kinds of physiological concomitants that come along with being angry. Now, sometimes we feel anger, but we don't express it. And that's like, my mom is really good at that. And she's sort of like, you know, nothing's wrong. I'm just fine. You know, and you go, mom, breathe. You know, but she's like, I'm just fine. It's just fine. And you know, it is not fine. Um, <laughs> depression is often when there's a sense of loss of support, loss of things that are important. It's associated with loss. And you can sometimes kind of cycle between these. But these are the major negative affects, and they are associated with um, a lot of you know, effects on the immune system, on the heart, and on our bodies, and we'll talk about that. Now, I'm going to say this is where most of the research had always focused. It was on negative emotions and how those are related to disease outcomes. It's, this is sort of like my career followed this. And nobody talked about positive. You know, we just did negative. And let me share with you some of the, the studies. Uh, here's one on anger and disease. It was a religious order study. They had 851 clergy, the majority of them were men. And they studied suppressed anger. That would be like mom and my mom. Nothing's wrong. I'm just fine. Leave me alone. Um, Or depression. Now, they found that both of those mood states were associated with increased death rates over four years. And that's independent of age, gender, because there were some women in the study, education, smoking, obesity. It carries its own risk. It's not a good thing. 
So um, that's one study. There's the Women's Health Initiative. This is a study I actually played a part in. They studied 100, over 107,000 women. This is the study that was done that looked at hormone replacement. But while they were following all these women, they, we decided to throw in questionnaires and other things so we'd get more information at the time we were doing the studies. And one of the um, questionnaires, and I was, I was actually one of the people who said, let's, let's put in that optimism scale. So we put in this optimism scale, and it turned out that cynical, um, and we also had an, a hostility scale. Excuse me, there was a hostility. It was a Cook Medley hostility scale. And we, we th- put that in. It has like 27 items, you know, do you have these feelings? And they found that cynical or hostile women had an increased risk of death. So the most hostile women, 63 um, deaths per 10,000 when they did this follow-up. And we'll be able to continue to follow the women that are still alive and see if that holds up. If women who are less hostile, they, there were fewer deaths. And all these women were, are, were basically 55 years and older, and they followed them for 11 years, and now we're just continuing to follow them. But it looks like being hostile and cynical is not so great. Later, I'm going to tell you about the optimists. Okay, now, the question is, how do these negative emotional states get into our body? And this is where most of the research has been. How does it do it? What goes on? Well, there are physiological um, responses is one pathway. And what we find is that negative affect affects basically all of our systems. You can see this. And here's just sort of the systems. There's, um, it affects the nervous system. You can see, you will hear about the fight, flight, freeze response. It affects muscles, the muscular system. People, when they get really upset and angry, frustrated, it can affect, you can have more headaches, more pain. The cardiovascular system is one that is particularly sensitive to this. I'm going to also talk about the respiratory system. Um, One of the things I'm particularly interested in studying is inhibited breathing, which is more more, um, common, actually, in women than in men, and that is under-breathing. As I described my mom, plus my mom, I use her as an example, but when she does her thing about saying, I'm fine, nothing's wrong, do you notice something about me? I am not breathing. I am feeling like I have total control over my body, and I am as tight as can be. This is part of, there's, we think it's associated with the freeze response. If there was a loud noise, we would all go, what was that? And when you're doing that, you don't breathe. Because breathing is noisy, and you want to hear. And it's part of the orienting response. When people feel vulnerable also, they tend not to breathe and um, as much as they need to. And we don't tend to breathe like we would if we're sleeping babies. Have you ever held a little baby sound asleep and their little tummies are going up and down and up and down? And we were all taught, at least I was, you know, sort of like, you know, make it look incredibly flat. Don't, you know, so when you ask people to take a deep breath and many of us go, which is not a deep breath. You know, if you're a singer, you know you have to actually lower the diaphragm and expand your lungs. So I'm really interested in that. And we see this with people who are working on the computer. You know when that little hourglass thing comes and you go, come on, come on, come on, what's wrong with this? Why is this taking so long? Come on, come on. Tend not to breathe. So I'm interested in that. We'll also talk a little bit about the immune system. When people are really angry and upset, it can actually have effects or have this negative mood that affects the immune system. And there's been studies of that, like this one. 
that, um, uh, some colleagues um, of mine have been studying negative affect, and now we have these PET scans and um, you know, imaging studies that we can do so we can get people upset and then look and see what's going on in the brain. And you can tell I'm a scientist. This is so intriguing, you know, because for years we, we'd have to just do questionnaires. And now we can see. And they found that negative and positive emotional states are associated with different sides of, um, of frontal lobe activity. Negative states, particularly depression, is associated with right-sided frontal lobe activity. So this person is there. That's, that's as you see, the right side is lit up there. Ne- um, positive states are more on the left side, just so you know. And so then they can study people, and they look at people who have a lot of this right-sided activation, the negative activation, and they have lower basal levels of natural killer cell activity. Those are the cells that go through your body and look for things. You know, they're sort of like the scrubbing bubbles in that ad. That's how I visualize. My body is all these little machines, and it's going around looking for, you know, bad cells and getting rid of those. But those are the natural killer cells. We like those. Um, Greater decrease increases in natural killer cell function. You don't want, you need your natural killer cells out there taking care and getting rid of all the things. When people are under stress and they're the negative people, so now you've got a negative affect person and you put them under stress of an exam, their NK cells drop even more. And then they could put people and show them a positive film to see if these negative people can kind of like rally and laugh at a positive film. And they showed that they they showed less rise. Their immune systems just don't come up like people that are more positive. And they also, then they could give them a vaccine, and they've found that people who have these more of this negative affect, they don't respond to the vaccine as well. So it really is affecting, that's just the immune system. And I've mentioned breathing and so forth. So these mood states affect us throughout our bodies. Why, how the, this pathway underneath all of this we think is involved with a certain hypothalamic pituitary axis in our system, it lets out a stress hormone, and that is cortisol, which I've mentioned. And you'll hear some more about cortisol later, uh, which tends to be associated with negative affect. Now, what makes this tricky is I just described these physiological responses. Negative affect is also associated with maladaptive behaviors. For example, depression, when you look at people that are depressed, they are more likely to engage in all kinds of negative health behaviors. They drink more. They have more heavy alcohol use. They tend not to exercise as much. Uh, they have lower adherence to care when physicians prescribe something for them to do, even if it is to go take a walk or take these antibiotics. They're less likely to take their pills. It complicates the research because they're not taking care of themselves. Um, And then what happens is those same things, you've got the physiological pathway I've just described, and then on top of that, they're drinking alcohol, they're smoking, they're they're just going to go for those easy foods like the sugars, the high-fat food, because, you know, you get depressed and you just say, oh, heck with it, and go off your diet. And these things kind of just start to roll. 
and you know, kind of collect. It makes some, some of the studying tricky. Uh, so we have here the depression, and I just wanted to highlight that this has been something you've been hearing about in the mini-med course. We've talked about each of the lectures, particularly Rita Redberg with heart disease, talked about exercise, yoga. They've talked about diet. Judy Walsh, when she talked about bone health, the importance of exercising. Remember, you're supposed to do weight bearing exercise, and she talked a little bit about you know, remembering to take your calcium. Uh, Laura Esserman talked about breast health. Um, she didn't spend as much time on prevention, uh, but there are things you can do to really lower your risk for breast cancer. They're, they're not you know, definitely as associated, say, as liver disease is with alcohol, but alcohol is a risk factor for breast health. Being obese is a risk factor for breast health. So all of these health behaviors kind of are channeling and affecting different chronic illnesses, and they're associated with depression. So I just wanted to highlight how these lectures all seem to merge together on things that we can do something about. Now, yet one more pathway by which negative affect affects our, our disease outcomes. And this has to do with being isolated. And that here, this was a study that was done at Whitehall, which is the, this is where all the government workers in London live. And there's been a lot of studies of the government workers there. And in this study done by Andrew Steptoe and a couple of his students, they looked at 188 healthy men and 110 healthy women who worked in Whitehall. And they were like a cohort. And they did all kinds of studies on these people. So it's called co Whitehall II, second cohort. And they found that people who felt isolated. And they measured this by how many people the person was close to. And sometimes that'll be questions like, if you needed, you know, say a loan and you needed some money with no questions asked, do you have someone that you could ask? Do you have someone that you could turn to if you're in trouble and you just really needed to talk about what's been happening to you? Do you have someone with whom you could share and talk about those things and work through your thoughts. And some people will say, yes, they have one, two, or three. It turns out you don't need a lot. You need just some people that you can go to, really good friends. Um, but some people feel incredibly isolated. They don't have anyone that they could talk to about what's really happening in their lives. And they found that socially isolated men and women had higher waking cortisol levels and higher cortisol output during the day. Remember I mentioned the cortisol. That may be one of the major kind of chemicals in our bodies that link depressed mood with negative health outcomes. And so you've got that being raised because of the stress of negative affect by being socially isolated, then the people don't engage in behaviors like walking or exercising, which would lift their mood. So you can see sort of there's this sort of a snowballing effect of physiological response, negative health behaviors, and being socially isolated, so that these moods have a lot of effect. Now, some of us got interested in saying, well, that's all well and good, but how do we fix this? What can we do about it? And we um, got interested in what about trying, instead of just saying to people, don't be depressed. Whatever you do, don't be depressed, you know, which is sort of like, I want you to stop. And we had studies in this, like, stop being depressed. Well, what are you supposed to do if you're not depressed? And, so, and actually, when you work with kids, you can either say, don't do that, don't do that. Or most of us have learned you get out a toy or something and distract them and get them laughing. And, you know, that changes behavior more with kids. And so I kind of got to thinking, and I thought, well, 
why don't we do that with adults? You know, what about the other side? So let's look at the positive side here. And what about its impact on health? And what about its interventions? So I told you about the, the, that, the, the clerical study. Well, what about the opposite? Are people who have a positive mood, do they live longer? Guess what? How many of you think they do? Hands up, hands up. Okay, well, they do. Uh, this is a great study. Some of my favorite studies. Um, there are 180 Catholic nuns, and they wrote these autobiographies when they went into the convent, when they were in their, they were 22 years of age, and so and now they are all between the ages of 75 and 95, and they scored their little stories for emotional content. And I'm gonna, you can kind of read. I'll read along with you. Here's one that was low on positive. It's not depressed. It's just sort of. Low on positive. I was born on September 26, 1909, the eldest of seven children, five girls and two boys. My candidate year was spent in the mother house teaching chemistry and second year Latin at Notre Dame Institute. With God's grace, I intend to do my best for our order, for the spread of religion, and for my personal sanctification. So that, it's just, you know, it's sort of a biography, she was told. Now you read this one. God started my life off well by bestowing me with the grace of inestimable value. The past year which I have spent as a candidate studying in Notre Dame College has been a very happy one. Now I look forward with eager joy to receiving the holy habit of our Our Lady and to a life of the union with the love divine. And she just sort of has a different outlook on life. So what happens? Well, they studied all of these, you know, 100 or so diaries, and they found that positive emotional content predicted survival, which is later mortality, six decades later. Positive affect. Now, notice, too, it's not inverse to negative. It's the positive affect was really bestowing this positive effect, and that's when you see the three little stars. It's associated with decreased um, hazard, meaning it was associated with longer mortality. The person who did the study said, finding such a strong association of written positive emotional expression to longevity indicates a need for research that sheds light on what are the underlying mechanisms and mediators, just like with negative affect. How does it get under the skin? What's happening for people have this positive affect? What, how does that translate into health? I promised you I'd talk to you about the Women's Health Initiative. And the optimists, they found it there, too. The study of 107,000 women, we gave this optimist scale. Uh, the life orientation test is what it's called. And they found it's, it, the optimists had fewer deaths than the pessimists. Now, you're going to have deaths because these women were all seniors. But the, the, they're less in the optimistic group. And the nun study is important because that measure of positive affect was done when people were 22 years of age. What I like about this one is this was, these assessments were made when the women were 55 plus. So I think that anywhere along the chain, you know, we could begin to think about you know, maybe wanting to change and try to get into that optimistic group. Now I'll talk about those pathways. This is all brand new. This is like, you know, we are now, we've moved from a heavily plowed field of negative affect that has been studied for years, decades, to something where we're really, you know, basically it's new territory and it's really exciting. But we have some findings. Now I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the impact of stress. Have any of you ever noticed that you get colds when you fly on airplanes? 
Does anybody, I, this happens to me, and that's why I take airborne or that vitamin C. You know, I don't know if it's a placebo, but it seems to help. Um, you get on an airplane. Now, the, the, there's lots, a lot of reasons this could be. Some of us who fly, right before you go on vacation or before you fly, I don't know if this ever happens to you, but I end up trying to get a lot of stuff done before I leave. And I'm up really late, and I'm still packing, and I'm doing, I've got this list of stuff to do, and then you've got to get to the airport early, and you know, take off your shoes and your belts, and make sure you've got the liquids out of your purse, and you know, it's just, it's like a lot of stress. Otherwise, you lose stuff, you know, they take it. Like, even my yogurt, I, you know, they wouldn't let me take an unopened yogurt through. It was like, you've got to be kidding, you know, I'll, I'll eat some of it. No, nope, no, nope, it's gone. You know, it's incredible. I have lost more stuff. I keep thinking that, that, that something I have is probably okay. Um, but anyways, there's a lot of stress right before we travel, and that may be part of it. But then, of course, the air circulation is not particularly good, and to save money, there's less air circulation. So you're on the plane, and there, you know, there's the person right behind you. You know, but, you know and then you get out the, the sanitizer, you know, you're like... <laughs> I don't know that it works. Um, anyway, and so you're exposed to rhinovirus is what's going. Now, a colleague of mine, Sheldon Cohen, actually did this study. You could do it in airplanes because you know when you flew, and you knew there was a person nearby that had a rhinovirus. But in this study, Sheldon put these people in a house. They were all healthy. They measured their stress, positive, negative affect, and then they actually did this. They dropped rhinovirus down people's noses. So they know when they were exposed. And I had to tell you about that because then you see. So the question then is, what about positive affect? Will that help? Yes. Now, actually, Sheldon first did all these papers on the stress. And then he heard, I actually gave a talk, and he heard my talk, and he went back to his data, and he found some, he, did, he analyzed his data again and found that positive affect was protective. Um, we had, a lot of us had the data, but we just didn't look at it because we were studying, you know, we were on the stress path. But he found that positive emotional style, which he had buried in his data, was associated with lower risk of developing a cold following Viral challenge. That is a sterilized thing. <laughs> viral challenge. You know. uh, and then there have been other studies. This, this is a cute study. They just studied people on a campus, and they studied their mood states, and then they followed these faculty and just had them count how many colds they had. And they found that when they studied the large group that being having positive effect, people had fewer colds. Now, you know, someday you're going to see me at c- campus, and I'll have a cold, and you can go, uh-uh. <laughs> Okay, health behaviors. So physiologically, it, it's clearly protective. Um, health behaviors, guess what? Here it is. People with higher life satisfaction. Now, you'll notice sometimes I talk about positive affect, and then I have to talk about life satisfaction. It's because this is new. So you have to kind of like be Nancy Drew. Those of you who are older remember Nancy Drew. And you have to you know, find the evidence. But people with life satisfaction were more likely to engage in all of these behaviors. They are more physically active. It's like they don't, you know, they've got all the positive going from. They're also more active. They smoke less. Uh, actually, when women quit, if they can, if they're not depressed and angry, they're more likely to stay off cigarettes. Moods are really the reason many women return to smoking. By the way, 
It's really, there's a gender difference there. So smoking may be for women something they use to manage moods. And it's really, it's, and it's a good drug for that. It's, a, it's an effective drug, but it's really unhealthy. Alcohol. Uh, people that are more on the positive spectrum tend to drink less. Um, healthier diet. It's just, it, again, it's like the opposite. It's, it's like the snowball running backwards and um, ending up with a very small, wonderful gem. Uh, when you see people that are positive. What about social support? Now, these people don't need support because they're so healthy, but guess what? People who report positive emotions are more likely to receive more support. Uh, which is really kind of sad because, you know, people like to be around positive people and they, they sometimes aren't as around, um, you know, people who probably need more support. Positive affect is associated with a higher number of people who provided help over a 12-month period. So if you ask people how many people helped you, if you're a positive affect person, more people have been helpful to the person who may, you know, we all need help, but it's just, it's sort of, um, you know, this, this is a cascade that you see. It makes it tricky to study because it's not, you can't just, you, you can't study is it the social support or the health behaviors or the physiological because they're all intertwined together, uh, but building a healthier profile. So now I want to just mention that what really surprised us is that positive emotions are not the inverse of negative emotions, that they're, you can't just take people who aren't depressed and they're the happy people. It's like that first nun's report. She wasn't depressed, but she wasn't buoyant. She wasn't you know, optimistic like the other person. And this is what we found. That This was some work that Susan Folkman and I did, that under chronic stress... And we were studying gay men who had HIV who were caring for a gay man that had HIV, and the man he was caring, <laughs> they were caring for we knew would die because it was before we had the more effective drugs. So we were studying the care provider of someone we could predict was likely to pass away. And so we were studying the stress on those people who were caring for the person who had the same disease that they had. So it's really, really tough. And we found that when the partner who was ill passed away, the caregiver became incredibly distressed, and we expected that. But what we didn't expect was that from time to time, even in that moment of the most great distress, people could identify things that were positive in their lives. Uh, They would say, you know, something about, you know, he's gone to a better place, or they could see a beautiful sunset, or they could see the flowers, that you can be really, really upset about some tragedy that has occurred and then feel something positive. I remember 9-11. I was out of the country. It was hard to get back. And um, when I finally got back, I, um, I saw the American flags over the freeway. And as sad as I was and kind of upset and all of that, that, that someone had put up a flag. It was just, and I'm not a flag you know, I, I'd never thought of myself as a flag person, but I remember feeling good about that. You know, it was like, yes, you know, that's good. Somebody did that. They left that mark that for me to see. It's reminded me of the, the famous poem of the daffodils left in the meadow, and somebody mowed the meadow, and they decided they weren't going to mow down those daffodils and left this little tuft of daffodils in the field. And it was just sort of, it tells you about people, because a person had to do that. A person did that. So you can have negative and, and positive affect at the same time. You have two things you can be in control of. This is incredibly important. It was an 
incredible discovery. Um, we also found in that study that positive affect and finding positive meaning during the most difficult times was associated with more rapid recovery from bereavement. And that got Susan Falkman and I all, we started studying meaning in life, that how important that is for people that are more optimistic and positive, to remember what's important, what is the core of each one of us, what we really value. And that takes some time to think, what about you that you value the most? And maybe it's position, but it may be that you're a good mom, or maybe you're a good caregiver, or maybe you just really love each day, you know, or maybe it's you've, you've done something special for someone that no one even knows about, but you're proud of that. And it's finding that meaning in your life that is so central to us. And it was interesting to be working with people who had AIDS, and this is before the medications, and they didn't know if they would live. And what those folks did, they were the ones that said, you are not studying the most important thing in our lives. We now don't take any day for granted. And Susan and I just sort of went, you know, because we thought we were studying stress. And they were telling us, you're missing something. You know, we're living each day because we know now that, you know, we may only have so many. So, and the truth is, all of us only have so many. We just don't want to think about that. But you have an opportunity each day it's a birthday because it's like it's a new day. I know and all that stuff sounds trite. Today is the first day of the rest of your life, but today is the first day. Anyway, <laughs> so, okay. The question is now, looking at my clock, what about can you increase it? So Susan and I, this is sort of a research journey. We suddenly realized this whole domain. I talked a little bit about it. Sheldon goes and looks at his viral data and finds what he's found. So now it, the question gets to, can you, can, you get, can you increase this? Or is this something you're born with? You know, did those nuns, maybe that's how, you know, and there is character. You, many of you have children, and you know you have your kids that are just sort of like little miniature curmudgeons. You know, they just kind of came out that way. And then other little kids are sort of just everything, you know, and so everybody has their character. But the question is, can we, can we do something about this? And so uh, I want to share with you some of the work that we did and also talk with you about ways that you can maybe even dial that up, you know, and be, you know, so optimistic. People would just sort of ask you to sort of, you know, it's a little over the top on this optimism stuff. Um, one of the things that, um, that you look for studies, there's this mindfulness-based stress reduction. Um, and this person, not here at the Osher Center, but I think she's in... Um, in Europe, studied mindfulness-based stress reduction to see if it changes affect. And she was actually focusing on depression, but just like other people had the positive measures in there too. And it's like, oh my goodness, look at that. And they had 60 people who were depressed, and what they wanted to do was have them be less depressed. And they were randomized to get this MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, or um, wait list, which isn't the best, tightest kind of study, but it's okay. And they found that the MBSR was associated with significant decreases in perceived stress and increases in positive affect. And there is this wonderful scale called the Perceived Stress Scale developed by Sheldon Cohen, uh, the same guy. Uh, but they also got these increases in positive affect from just learning mindfulness. But it wasn't mindfulness is not really tailored to focus that much. But it does have you just sort of stop for a moment, 
you know, and learn how to meditate and learn how to kind of tune into things that are more important and push, you know, the stresses of everyday life come into your mind and then you just let them drift away and come back to what's essential. And maybe when people begin to do that, they get to that core of what they really value in their lives. Um, there are other stress management interventions. Uh, there's a positive. There's a combined positive affect and self-affirmation intervention. There's some cognitive behavioral stress management. I'm going to talk to you about the one that we developed here at UCSF called coping effectiveness training, and I'll present some data on that. Um, we did it twice. The first time, we weren't focusing so much on positive affect. And then we came back, and I'll report to you the second round. And when I say we, it was Susan Folkman and myself. The second round, we found these, this evidence that we could enhance positive affect. And it was so intriguing, we went to see if we could do more. And we then I'll report on the second study to show you what we were able to find and how we did it. So that's coping effectiveness training, and I'll teach you about that. This... Stress and coping model is behind the coping effectiveness training. And this is a very powerful way to think about stress in our lives because this is what happens. You know, think about the stuff that's happened to you today. You know, just sort of what was stressful about today? Maybe getting to this class, the traffic, the heat, your car breaking down. Um, you have general stressors. Sometimes I'll even feel like I have stress and I don't even know why. It's like walking to a room and you don't know why you went there. Sometimes I just feel so much stress. I go, what's, what is it? You know, what's going on? You know, or maybe I spoke a little harshly to someone. And then I say, okay, i got to be more specific. What's bugging me? What is it? And so you have to get more specific. And then this is Susan Folkman's theory. Then you start to separate out your stress into what's changeable? What can I do something about? And then there's things you can't do anything about. Um, you know, like we can't do anything about... Uh, if with people with HIV, they couldn't change that they had HIV. We can't bring back people that are, my mother has dementia now, and I, there's not much I can do about that. That's an unchangeable stressor in my life, but, you know, I look at the changeable things I can visit. You know, we, a lot of us, aging is, we can do the best we can, but the, calendar, the clock just does kind of keep ticking on. So there's unchangeable things in our lives, and especially things in the past. You can't go back and change. So what Susan's theory had shown that there are these two types, and people get these all kind of messed up. She showed that if you've got something that's changeable, problem solve is the way to deal with it. Frankly, not meditation. Unless if you meditate, you'll come up with an answer. But sometimes if something is changeable, get some help, get some problem solving, talk, do some negotiating, talk to people, and deal with it. Um, and then if things are unchangeable, this is where you can use all kinds of other strategies. That, because you can't do anything about it, you have to change your response to it. The other thing that Susan's study and research showed, let me just share one thing. This is when I first started working with her. Some people try to use problem-solving strategies for things that are unchangeable, and that makes people sick because it's, it, this is that old serenity prayer, change the things you can change. Remember that prayer? Those of you know about that. People who, if something is changeable, and they use, this, you know, they just sort of try to just deal with it, but they, they can't, they don't change it. It just stays there in their life, pressing on them, pressing on them, pressing on them. So what turns out to be part of what we did in coping effectiveness training was we taught people to make this distinction, and then we would teach them 
really well all these skills and all the problem-solving skills and the emotion-focused skills and when to use them for their optimal health. So this is what was sort of behind that. And there's a lot of research that says if you try to cross over, like people at Three Mile Island, there was a meltdown in, in the United States. There were people, they studied them, the people that were really, really trying to do something about it and change it and do, you know, fight, it, it had happened. And there were other ways to deal with it that were more constructive. And these people got, they actually became more ill. And the effects lasted longer than people who did this kind of sorting. So it's just being strategic. Now, um, in our study, we really started also to focus on ways to enhance well-being. And that's what I want to share with you now. I've come up with this little tool to help us remember these points that we used in coping effectiveness training that worked. And the first point is B. And I use breathe as kind of to remind us. The B is be in the moment. Breathe. Breathe. Take that, you know, remember the word and just take a deep breath and be present with yourself in the moment. And you can almost do that any time. Just slow down, take a deep breath, and then exhale, can blow out some of your stress. And if you're taught how to meditate, you can learn things like just take a moment to feel where you are. Feel the chair. Feel your feet on the floor. Be where you are right now. Just, you know, take a moment to just be with yourself in yourself. And if you have, you can take a meditation class, or you can even go to Barnes & Noble or Amazon. You can get CDs, all kinds of ways. Many of you know this. It's like take a deep breath and just take it down. Dial down the stress and be where you are. That's sort of center. People talk about that. The R. This is really key in stress management and being more positive, that many of us try to do too much in a given day than we can get done. And I'm sure none of you do that. But people who do this get to the end of the day or get to the end of work, and they go, oh, I still, you know, and if I look like I, you know, I used to be, I'm in remission now, but, um, <laughs> you know, it was like, oh, I still, I can't believe, and I still didn't make that call, or I still didn't get that letter out, or I still, you know, the things I tend to put off. And, you know, I would just, you know, sort of beat myself up over it and go to bed at night lying there going, oh, and making lists right by the bed. <laughs> you know, and part of that is I'm not being realistic. And, you know, I, I, my attache case is just filled with everything. You know, like, what is the point? You know, you know I just because you never know when you might need five times, more, five times more work than you could even do in, like, three weeks. And you're carrying it around, you know, just to remind yourself and pull your shoulder down. So it's, I will tell you one trick. If you're a person that has something you're putting off, this is, this is a freebie, it doesn't really fit in this lecture, what we tend to do is we don't want to do that. So we do the little itty-bitty things that you can do quick, make copies, da-da-da-da, and then you, if you, you look at your checklist and you didn't, it's not on the list, you write it down so you can check it off. And that is a way of procrastinating. You're reducing your anxiety, getting a lot of little things done, but you still didn't do the big one. So the strategy is take the big one and just start. Take the paper out or get on your computer, start the letter that you've been putting off. Do the address, the date, and start the first sentence. Now go make the copies and do the other little things. Make yourself do the one you're putting off first. But anyway, 
The, co the core, though, is let's be realistic. You're in this class. Maybe you even brought some reading in case I was boring. How many of you have a little <laughs> extra stuff, you know, checking your BlackBerry? Um, so it, it, this is not good. So it set realistic goals is really important for this hour, for this time, for this moment, for this day. And then, then you say to yourself, hey, I did it. I did it. I did what she said. And the next time you see yourself going, ah, ah, remember me, because I've done that too. And they say, wait a minute, I remember, where's that card? Okay, so set realistic goals. The E, the E has to do with everyday events. Notice the positives. Just go begin to sort of force yourself to see the positives around us. The sunset. Um, I was expecting to leave my building tonight and get a blast of 90-degree heat. And I walked out, and it was like the, the, uh, the wind is blowing. The sky is perfect. You know, it was just incredible. You know, so beautiful. Uh, and the other thing you can do is share these moments with others. Now, I, I went to the East Coast, and I did this. It was a little dangerous. You know, people say, don't do that here. You know, just, you know, I walk up to people and say, that is such a great color on you. You should wear that all the time. And I don't even know them. You know, it's like, <laughs> you can do that in California. In Baltimore, it's a little weird. You know, people, but, you know, but then they kind of get into the mood. You know, they can understand. They go, you're not from here, are you? <laughs> Sorry, people listening to UCTV from Baltimore. Um, but you share these events with others. Look at the flowers. You know, it's incredible. You know, there's always some, you know, no matter how bad it is, you know, you'll see a little kitten or just, there's just, it's everywhere. Um, the other thing about everyday events is this. Okay, this is, you're probably wondering, why the tire? You know, well, this, this relates to me. I'm, I hate changing tires. I did used to know how to do it when they had the, the, the thing that would just, you know, had there was one stick and it went in this device and you went clunky, clunky, and the thing would raise up and then you would reduce, you know, loosen the, the bolt things on the tire and you replace the tire. Now they've got these lock things. And do you know where the lock is? The lock special remover thingy for your, huh? Does anybody know? Probably in the glove compartment. But you don't know. It's very embarrassing. And, and none of the thingies are the same anymore. You open the thing and there's like three parts. I don't remember three. What is this? You know, this is not good. And so, um, and you only get a flat tire when you want to go somewhere. This is a, this, there's a rule about that. You know, you did not plan, you know, I, I have to go out to my car a half an hour early because I might have to replace the tire with some miniature tire that's in the trunk that they say, do not drive on this tire. And you feel like, then why are you in my trunk? <laughs> Who put you here? And and do you have any air? Have we ever looked? You know, it's a problem. So it's, it's, on, it's under the tr in your trunk under all the stuff you keep there. It's, there's this little pretend tire that says, do not go over 15 miles an hour. Excuse me. You know, I have a meeting. So anyway, <laughs> I am thrilled. Now, this is, you have to recognize when things are going right. Now, tonight, after this course, I will go to my car and I will go, yes, yes. My tires are inflated, and I do this every day. And so far, so good. And I do this. This is actually the truth. You know, it is. And when I get my mail, I look through it, and I go, Bill, 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 nothing from the IRS. Yes, it's a good day. This is good. So the part here is notice when you're, it's good. We don't do that. 
nobody has a really bad cold in here or, or you're on really good medication because I don't hear it. So, but you remember when you have a cold and you can't breathe and you're saying to yourself, oh, I can't wait. If I can only breathe again, I wouldn't have to do this thing of like lying on this side and then you go to the other side and it's just, you know, ugh. or you take the stuff that clears your nose, but they say, don't use it. You'll get addicted to it. It's like, it's not good, but we're all breathing. But are we saying, oh, she said, take a deep breath, and I was able to do it. No, we take it all for granted. So my point here is every day there are millions of reminders that we're alive and well and that we're okay and that you know, we're, things are good. And you know, they really are good. You know, there are places around the world we won't go there thinking about where people are really struggling. But what we face is not as bad as what many of them face. So I just say, you know, let's enjoy. Acts of kindness. This is where you actually create positive events for other people. Uh, you can do this in the grocery store. When you go to the grocery store, if you only have a few things to buy, you get the little basket, right? And then you go to checkout. And when I go to checkout, if I see a mom with kids and the big basket with all the stuff and the kids are crying and it's about 6.15 and, you know, I've got my stuff, I let her go first. And these people, they can't believe it. You know, it is, and, you know, I can just feel my immune system is like, ooh, it's... <laughs> but it's such a good feeling because she needs to go. She needs to get out of the store before I do. And I say, no, go ahead, go ahead. And the, the people are just sort of, they go, good Samaritan on aisle three. You know, it's like, <laughs> it can't believe this. But you can do that. And I do that driving. I let people in with, with flourish. You know, it's like, and people can't believe it. You know, you let me in. I mean, there are roads in, in San Francisco where nobody lets anybody in. You know, it's like a little thing. And you're inching along, practically crashing your car. But no, don't do that. So you can create positive events for others. You create the events for them. Now, negative things happen. They do. Um, and this is, this is the toughest part because you want to acknowledge when, when sadness is sad and we need to have sadness because it anchors us and sad things do happen. Um, negative things happen. And then you may need to stay with that for a long time, and I believe in that. But then there are times to then go, go ahead and say, okay, what am I going to do with this? Can I get energy out of this? Can I do something positive? Like Michael J. Fox... He's diagnosed with Parkinson's in front of you know, the world. Everybody knows that he has it. What's he going to do with that? He could no longer really do the things he wanted to do, though he's returned. And he's gone right on TV. He's been in TV shows. You know, and just there he is. You know, and he's open about it. He forms a foundation and has raised millions and millions of dollars for Parkinson's research and has helped all of us be okay about it and to be able to see it and to be able to, you know, it's okay that he can be on the Jay Leno show or something and, and be and have those symptoms and, and be okay about that. It's good for all of us. So we can look for those opportunities when they're there. And it's not to say that the challenge isn't there or it's, it's just, it's, it's remains sad, but you, you can find a silver lining. So look, reframe just as those of us, you know, when you go, you take an old picture and you reframe it, and you go, wow, that's not so bad, you know. You, um, you know, it's, that's important. You know, even, you know, like the spouse, every once in a while, or the partner, you reframe them they, or move them to a new part on your desk. Because you don't, you know, if you have a picture on your desk, if it's been there a long time, you don't see it. So you need to move it. And that's like, oh, you 
they look pretty good. That's, that's pretty good. So reframing our lives, because that's what we, that will give you power. And it's not to say that the other things didn't happen. It's just sort of a way to manage that. Now, H. Originally, we came up with honor your strengths. And I talked about that. Acknowledge your personal strengths, whatever they are things that you really value, like here's a person who's really good at potting, and if you've ever potted, and it's, a, it's, it's a skill. You know, I'm really good at centering not quite so good, and then you speed up the thingy, and then the, the clay kind of goes flying off and <laughs> hits somebody. And, you know, I'm sort of dangerous in potting studios. So um, that's, not, that's not me. Um, but each one of us has something that, you know, honor those things that are about you that are really powerful. But actually someone else recently said, Margaret, a better idea, humor. That's a really a good way. So maybe we should change to humor. Um, and just, you know, that that's a part of being optimistic. There's always something funny, no matter how bad things are. You know, sometimes, you know, when you lose your luggage and you've been wearing the same clothes for eight days, you know, and rinsing your underwear out in the sink and using the hair dryer, you know, you know putting it back on, a little damp, um, sort of like incontinence in reverse. Uh, you know, it's great because then when you're at a cocktail party, you can talk about it. So now when these things happen to me, I say to myself, this is going to be great. You know, in about 20 years, I can talk about this at a cocktail party, about how this happened to me. Like we had this last week, we had a bee infestation, um, the exploding sprinkler system. Uh, My husband's car rolled down a hill and he tried to stop it and it hit someone else's car and anybody hurt his knee. And, you know, it was just like, all of this happened in like three days. And it was like, oh my word, it was like we almost thought we should just get gauze and sit there (laughs) wrapped up, you know, sort of hiding from the bees. Um, it was incredible. Had to find the bee people to come and they take the bees. They, bees are valuable now, so you don't kill bees. They come and they, they take the queen and then all the other little bees go <laughs> after. Not all, actually, just almost all. There was a few hangers on. Um, so anyway, H, I, what, how many want humor? How many say humor? How many say honor strengths? Oh, it's a t- humor looks like it. May- well, maybe go with both. You can choose, and I'll make up a new card with both. Um, the E is end each day with gratitude. Instead of ending your day, like I used to, which was making the list of all the stuff I had to do the next day, which I probably wouldn't get to because it was an unrealistic list, and then I could get the next day and just look at the same list and kind of you know be even more upset with myself. You can tell I... I'm, as I said, I'm in remission on this. You end your day with gratitude, and you note the positive steps and all the things you're thankful for, because there's usually something, you know, that there's something there that, you know, if it is just being here and being alive and having maybe to look forward to another day where you can do those things you didn't get done. So, but, and then you can do positive accounting at the end of the day. People do this. And there are now some studies that show if you keep a gratitude diary, that that can really change sort of the way you view your life. But let me quickly share with you the study. Um, we did this coping effectiveness training. And remember the circle where I said we emphasized all these things to enhance well-being and find meaning. And we came up, we had to find a scale or a way to measure whether or not we were having an effect. And there aren't many measures. You go to the mental health literature, and they have depression scales, anger scales, but they don't have much on 
health. But we found this personal growth scale. I love some of these items. I learned to be myself and not try to be what others want me to be. I learned to communicate more honestly with others. I learned to be open. I learned to find more meaning in life. So I said, ooh, this, let's, let's use this. So we gave the scale to measure our effects. And we randomized, uh, we've done this, this now has been done with breast cancer patients, it's been done with stroke patients, it's been done with all kinds of other people, because I took the manual and I put it up on the internet, available to anyone to use. We kind of, we cleaned it up a little, so it could be work for all kinds of people, not just gay men living in San Francisco, but we, <laughs> uh, but we just, it was, it's the general idea of teaching skills. So we had men randomized to coping effectiveness training, and we had a sort of enhanced version of follow-up versus standard version of follow-up, and those are these first two columns, and then we had a group that just received phone calls once a month, and then they all got a special coping effectiveness training workshop. So we were able to study these two groups were not different, so we combined their data, and we compared the coping effectiveness training with people who were just getting some phone calls and filled out all the measures in the control group. And what we showed, looking at the period now, I'm just going to show you the data from the beginning of the study to when they finished the training, and that was three months, and they met every week, and then we sort of staggered it. So they had 10 sessions of training in this coping effectiveness of the skills to change things that could be changed and for things that couldn't be changed, learning to do some of the, the things I identified. They learned all of these things I, we've included in Breathe. And they enhanced their coping self-efficacy. Here's the groups that got coping effectiveness training. They have a higher score from the beginning to three months. They improved their self-efficacy. They were able to do it. They believed they could do it compared to the controls. And the other figures are looking the same, the comparisons. We had a scale on positive states of mind, being able to get to a place where you feel at peace with yourself. And, you know, one with yourself. It's kind of an odd scale. And notice the people in coping effectiveness training increased. The people in the control group actually got worse um, on that scale. But I haven't given you the personal growth scale. This is the personal growth scale. Remember those items I shared with you? The people in the coping effectiveness training showed a 15% increase, which is a really striking increase, in personal growth. And the people in the control group showed literally no change. They slipped down a little bit. So just being in touch with someone once a month um, didn't really help them. Now, let's look what happened at up to 12 months. Here's the initial phase of the intervention. And now we're following people over time. And this is the control group in blue, and the coping effectiveness is in the yellow. And here's the coping self-efficacy. What's striking about this is usually when you do these kinds of interventions, like if I showed you the depression, I should have that slide, that the depression people decrease in their depression. You want depression to go down. But then what happens is after about three months, it will sort of tend to kind of go back. It's like people who go on a diet and they lose weight, and then over time it slips away. There's something different about this skill that it sustains out into time. This is the coping effectiveness. We don't see the return to baseline. And these people were continuing to be called, and there may be something happening here for social support for them. They didn't get their um, final workshop until here, so we don't have a post-measure for them. 
Here's the positive states of mind. Remember, that was the one that I can get to a, po a peaceful place in my mind and so forth. Again, this is incredibly unusual. Usually, we'll get a change, and then people begin to kind of glide down. And by 12 months, they tend to be about the same. On the, but there's something different about getting people to a positive place that is strikingly different of the sustained effect over time. And here's the personal growth scale. They peak. Then they slip down a little bit, which, you know, is, as I mentioned, we often see that. And then it seems to just hold going out into time, which is really unusual. So it shows that, indeed, you know, I said that there are pathways by which positive emotions influence health and well-being. And I shared with you the health behaviors, the physiology, the social support. I've pointed out that the positive emotions are not just the inverse of negative emotions. So you can have things you're struggling with that are sad and or that you're angry about. Like we might, you might be angry about this recession and what it's doing to a lot of the people we care about. And that's a real feeling. But at the same time, you can notice the sky or the flowers or, you know, little children playing. I mean, you know, they don't know. They have no idea what all of this is going on. Can positive emotional states be increased and maintained? Yes, they can. And you now have tools that you can use. So I want to just return to thinking about how this fits with the Osher Center, because at the UCSF Osher Center, where we work on integrative medicine, and I think even more so at UCSF in general, we want to integrate all that is known in, in the way of effective strategies that would enhance each person's ability to age with vitality, which you now know much more about than you did six weeks ago, I hope. I learned some things, certainly. You now have some tools to outsmart stress and increase your positive affect and to really breathe. And you know, just begin to breathe, and then you can actually even begin to study that if you want to by learning some meditation. One of the things I think about integrative medicine so important is that and this, I think, is really true about so many people in healthcare. We set a goal beyond returning patients to a disease free state. The speakers, the five speakers that were here before me, when they talked about their work, they weren't just trying to get a person who was sick and make them well. Each one of those speakers really wanted to do more than that. They want to really encourage people to, to really reach out and ha personally grow and really enhance their well-being. You could see that excitement in each one of them where they were saying, you know, that you can do this. You could do weight-bearing exercise. Your bone health can be made better. Your heart health can be better. You know, you think about, you know, Laura Esserman's excitement as she talked about, you know, now that she's learning more about certain cancers are more dangerous than others, they should focus more on what is predicted and how excited she was about the Athena project. Because what people want to do is not just have people be not sick or not depressed. We want to have people thrive. You know, Kaiser's got one of the best um, you know, ad campaigns out there. And that's really true. And with integrative medicine, we want to encourage people to actively participate in uh, choices that would help build their resilience, prevent illness, optimize health, and improve the quality of their lives. Thank you so, so very much. So 
So are there any questions or comments? And the, I see the lady who had a question for me after the class, so please stop afterwards. I, uh, questions, comments, and observations. Please feel free to share your own observations. Yes. What do I take before? There's something. It's a little pricey. You can. It's airborne that you can buy. It's like an Alcas. It's a seltzer tablet that has a combination of a lot of vitamins. The other thing that I take when I travel, it's a little less expensive. Is emergency. Uh, you can buy this in health food stores. It's little packets of a thousand milligrams of vitamin C, and they're effervescent. And you pour them in water, and I will take that the day I travel and every day that I'm traveling uh, because I just feel that usually when I travel, I've changed time zones. Like on Sunday, I fly back to uh, the National Institutes of Health. And so you fly overnight. You have to get up at the crack. They start at 8 o'clock. But for us, what time is that? 5. You know, and so you have to get up at, like, you have to get dressed and get there. So you're, you're really all off. And so I will take an emergency and you can buy them as packets at health food stores. Sometimes they sell them separately. They're 30 cents, but it's worth it because, you know, you don't get the cold. Or you can buy packets. They come in a box, and then you get a lot of them. So Airborne is another one that was, I think they've advertised that a teacher made it um, and was encouraging people in their classrooms because she just saw how colds will just go through schools. And it's A-I-R-B-O-R-N-E. And as I mentioned, it's a little pricier, but it, it is a combination of vitamins. All of them are benign. Yes. I personally, and it's interesting how many of my colleagues here at UCSF will do that before they get on planes because you are exposed to many more germs. The other thing to do for airplane travel is be very careful when you use the restroom to um, wash your hands and then wash, use, the, use a tissue to open the door because a lot of people, you know, just you think about everybody on the plane is touching those places. So it's, you have a lot of exchange, you know, and so p the people are pretty careful about that. Or you might use those hand sanitizers. Though some people feel that that is not good because it doesn't boost your immune system, but maybe for on airplanes. I learned about hand sanitizers from flight attendants because I noticed what they were doing, and they were the, some of the first people to use it. Other questions? Yes. Yes, she's asking me, how did we measure hostility, and what, how did we define that? There is a scale of questions in the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, known as the MMPI, that was put together by Cook and Medley. And it, is, it, has, it pulls out items that it characterize hostility, like not trusting others, being suspicious of others, easily angry with others. Um, it's almost a cynical hostility. Uh, some of the items uh, are things like, you know, p if people find a dollar, they won't give it back. Um, if people can get away with something, they always will. Uh, you can't trust people, they won't tell you the truth. It's a cynical version of hostility. And so in that, what we did was we took all the women's scores on that test, and then you look at the people who are like in the highest like quartile and study those versus people that are very low. That cynical hostility is also, it was of interest at that time because that turned out to be what was coronary prone about type A. 
the type A behavior pattern is a real cluster of different things like being time urgent, talking fast. Um, there are all these characteristics that Rosamond and Friedman, who actually worked here at Mount Zion Hospital, right over on um, Scott Street is the Harold Brun Institute. They were right there when they wrote their book. And I did some research with Ray Rosamond, and we tried to figure out what was coronary prone about type A. And it wasn't doing two things at the same time. And it wasn't talking fast. It was this kind of hostility. It's like people, an example of it would also be when you're driving on the freeway, are you more focused on the people in front of you getting in your way than the people that you might be slowing up? where you're driving. The type A people were very, very focused on cars in their way. You know, and they would look ahead at traffic, I gotta go by that guy, and what's that guy doing? And you know, it's like a battle. When we interviewed type, these the cynical people would, would wanna know where, you know, they wanna know about the interviewer, you know, where'd you get your degree? Who are you? You know, you know they're competitive. You know, well, 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 you know did you, what kind of school did you go to? Wait a minute, you, maybe you just went to some not so half-baked place. But, you know, they, um, they're just amazing. The interviews, they always made people wait for the interview, and they tell them to be there right on time. It's really important that you have to be there right on time, be on time, be on time. And then they would leave the door open so that the interviewee could see, could see the interviewer, like, you know, buffing her <laughs> And the type A, you know, it was, and these, these, in the original study, they were all men, and then we did a study of women, and these men would come in, and they would just, you know, be angry at this person. And, and you know, she would go, oh, I just, I wasn't paying attention, you know, <laughs> you know, my, my, my clock isn't working, or I just didn't, oh, I didn't hear, I'll turn it, you know, and they were really upset, you know, and so they would try to, that was the, but the cynical hostility is, wait a minute, you know, you can't trust anybody. And in fact, I'm making a face. And it was interesting. Roseman and Friedman picked up the type A's, did something with their face. And they, they did a grimace. But Rosamond and Friedman weren't experts on faces. So they talked about the corrugator muscle, that's the muscle here, that they did some kind of frowning. And when I worked with Ray Rosamond, I discovered there was this guy named Paul Ekman. Some of you have heard about him. He's a specialist in faces. So we got Paul, and we had Paul look at the videotapes of the type A's. And Paul picked up what they were, you know, you take an expert on faces, and he could tell Rosamond and Friedman what they were looking at. And what they were seeing was really interesting. It wasn't what they thought. It wasn't, like, this isn't what they were, you know, I'm doing corrugator muscle, but that's not hostile. And what Ekman picked up was that the, the really extreme type A's would do a grimace with the lower lid, and they would go like, it's hard, I've hard to do, you have to go. <laughs> like that. I am raising, I have to learn this, Paul taught me these things, you raise just the lower lid. And that that is a, you know, animals do that too, it's a glare. And the other thing that they did were they would show disgust. And that's like if you smell something that's yucky, you go, and in the videos, you can even see the type, the type A people. It's very fast. You can, it's almost a micro thing because it's so not okay in our society to look at people with disgust. Um, you know, sort of, we don't do that. It's not nice. You know, you go up to him. <laughs> you know. but, um, they did a, but it would be very, very fleeting. But Paul, because what he would do is study every frame of the videotape so he didn't miss anything. 
So it's really interesting. But that's a long story on cynical hostility. And that's how we measured it. And it was not so good. It's better to not be that way. Because it means these people get no social support. It was very interesting when I studied type A people. They know a lot of people. And they know where they went to school. And they know this. And they know that. They know everything about them. But they're not getting, you know, it's not social support. It's like just people you know. Yeah. Yes, question. We have two questions. Cortisol. You know, I'm not an expert on some of these um, physiological components, but cortisol is part of the adrenal cortisone response to stress, or adrenal corticoid steroids. And it is a, um, it's in our bodies. It's, it's turning out to be much more complicated than we thought it was. It, and when I described it, we talked about it tends to be elevated in people that are under stress and depressed and tends to also go down. It starts lower in the morning and then rises throughout the day. Um, but we are beginning to find that it's, it's more variable than we thought, to be very accurate. So it's hard for, we used to, that's very simple thing, it, because our bodies turn out to be needing to be in balance. And so you have these you have this corticoid steroid system, but you also have another system that counterbalances it. And so what may be even more important is the balance. But many people are still studying cortisol as an indicator of stress. Um, and it can be measured through the blood. But an easier way that we study it at the Osher Center is it's in saliva. And so we can have people take a Q-tip, run the Q-tip around in their mouth, slip it into a little casing, put the cap on, and then we can analyze the salivary cortisol. Um, and that will give you kind of an aggregate measure. And aggregate-wise, and in a lot of studies, it's a marker of stress. It's not a positive thing in our bodies. You know, it's, it's associated also with inflammation. So it's not something that is, is viewed as good. But I would not be being complete if I told you that that's all we know. Because we are now seeing that what may be more important than a level of this thing or that thing is how well your body's in balance. Which is really interesting because it starts to hearken to some of the other whole systems of medicine that strive for balance. But it's a good, a good question, and that, that's sort of given you my, my index card knowledge of that. Most of us you know, have areas we know more in depth than other areas that are like Swiss cheese, and you're walking along, and all of a sudden, you know. And that's why, by the way, we work in teams at UCSF a lot, because what you do is you work with someone else who's the expert in that. The other thing I didn't talk about, by the way, is telomeres, too, which is a new thing that we're studying in all these studies, which are the ends of our chromosomes that are like the, um, you know, the end of a shoelace. And they're really, they keep that shoelace all tightly bundled together. And we are, we are very interested in studying positive affect and seeing whether it has an effect on telomeres. We know already that exercise does. Um, another question. The, the question was, you know, that you, we know people who appear to be very positive. Um, and I'm going to ask you a question. Do you sense that it's genuine or is it more of an act? It's genuine. It's genuine. She's saying that there are people who have a genuine positive affect and that they also have an undercurrent of some, some real struggles. Well, I think that, you know, as I've said, they're not opposites. 
so they can coexist. And so they are people who, you know, they wouldn't need to do much to raise their positive necessarily. But, and you can't get rid of the negative necessarily with positive because they're, they're, indep- they're not totally independent. There is an association, but they're not at all. We used to think they were opposites so that you could take a low score in depression and those were the happy people. And so those people, I think, do exist, and they, they're not bipolar, um, but they're people who, if the, the, the negative states are really pulling them down, they, they could get some counseling to try to find out what, what it is that's, as you remember, I identified anger and depression. Those are things you actually can get help with. Um, anger has to do with a sense of injustice and, you know, really expecting things of others, expecting the world to be in a way we would like to have control over the world so it would be that way for us. And that can often come out with people who have a high need to be in control. And, you know, it's really frustrating, but we are not in that much control as we'd like. You know, when you think about the universe, every once in a while it's kind of good to go to Google Earth and then just go from Earth to your house. And it's kind of a little bit of a lesson in how we feel like we're really big and important, but we are you know, maybe not as big and as important. But that's, often those are control issues. And so a person could get counseling on that. Meditation could also perhaps help with that. But it depends on what I would want to do is, I'm a clinical psychologist. I would want to kind of get a sense of what's feeding those negative states and see if you could kind of find a way to modulate them. But that can occur. There are also people who are very hostile but can mask it with positive. Another thing that people do that are upset and depressed is they act, they're busy. They act busy. They keep very, very busy. And that's not necessarily, that, that can be positive, but that's another way of sort of dealing with not being happy. You just kind of keep going. Um, it's not a bad thing because you get a lot done, but it's, it's good to sometimes find a way to kind of figure out what's, what's going on. And a lot of what I think many of us experience is some frustration that we don't have the control that we would like to have. I mean, that's, it's frustrating. You know, you, you study for a test, you want to get the A. You know, and you, you know, we, you, it's, it's tough, too, that many of us are trying really hard to stay healthy, and then, you know, still our systems do get older, and they begin to, it's like mine, you know, I just notice that my body is increasingly looking like my, you know, my grandmother's. I was, I may have mentioned this, I remember, I, I remember she was making something, stirring in a big bowl, and I noticed her arm was kind of doing this weird thing. <laughs> and I was a little girl, and I, I was mostly waiting for her to leave so I could go to the cookies, but, you know, I, was, I remember that look, and I thought it was great. I, it, I didn't think anything, it was like, that's her, and I just noticed it, and it was a very loving thing. You know, it was sort of like, that's who she is. She was all squishy, and she wore these silky dresses that look like, you know, curtains now. But, you know, she was wonderful. <laughs> and, and all of it was great. You know, we, don't you have those memories? I mean, I, but I remember the arm thing. And it came to my mind because the other day I was doing these eggs, and all of a sudden I flashed on my grandmother's and was like, oh, my heavens, there it is, you know. <laughs> And you can either laugh about it or you can sort of do, you know, immediately start wondering what exercise can I do to make that go away. <laughs> Other questions? What a great question. This question was, what is the Osher Center? Well, thank you. 
I should have said. Um, it's not a naive question. The Osher Center, UCSF has a center of integrative medicine. It, it's called the Osher Center because Mr. and Mrs. Osher, who are philanthropists who live here in San Francisco, endowed this center. They were interested in trying to increase the amount of research, education, and actually clinical practice of making available to people the idea of integrative medicine. And that is not just conventional medicine, which tends to be, you know, of course our conventional medicine at UCSF is more integrative, but it tends to be waiting till people get sick and then treating them with medicines or surgery or taking action and treating people. And the idea of integrative medicine, which the Oshers found out about, I think when they traveled to China, one of them did get sick, and they were treated with uh, Chinese traditional medicine. And you know, there's a lot of interest in what's called complementary and alternative medicine. The idea is, could you, shouldn't a place like UCSF, where you have the very best scientists, be studying these kinds of practices? So the Osher Center is a place where we actually have about 100 people, and a lot of them are doing the research on things like meditation. My research is studying breathing and the extent to which breathing is, and I can just I'll tell you a little bit about that, but is breathing the key thing about meditation that really affects health. So we're doing research funded by the National Institutes of Health, and it's on everything from, it's mostly integrating conventional medicine with these other practices and really focusing on behavior and lifestyle so that um, we're studying that. What we find, we teach here at UCSF in all of the schools, the medical school, the nursing school, there are required hours in the curriculum so that physicians, nurses, dentists, and pharmacists here are learning about the full spectrum of medicine, not just what we've traditionally called Western medicine. So we have education, research, and we have a clinic. If you come to the clinic at the Osher Center, you can be referred there. They take insurance. We take insurance. You could see a physician, but that physician will spend an hour with you and then see you again in a couple weeks and see you for a second hour, and they're going to talk to you about you know, really trying to enhance your wellness or if you have pain and you, you, you've seen all the others. We, we see a lot of people who've seen all the other specialists, but no one could figure out what was going on, and so they come to us. And you can see these physicians who will go through you know, sleeping, exercise, diet, trying if you have a problem, they're going to really work with you, but it's a partnership. They don't, they don't wear white coats a lot of the time. They're, just, they're sitting there as experts to work with you on this. Um, and then we have practitioners, acupuncturists. So when people are at UCSF getting chemotherapy for cancer, we can send an acupuncturist over to help them deal with the nausea that comes, or they come over and see us. People from the cancer center, a lot of oncologists refer people to the Osher Center because there are all these nuances in diet, and herbs and things, things you should or shouldn't take if you have cancer or other conditions. Uh, we see people with really difficult diabetes trying to bring their bodies in the optimal balance, but of course staying on their insulin. So it's, it's like totally integrative. And if you go to Osher, O-S-H-E-R, or just go UCS Integrative Medicine, if you have a computer, you'll see our whole website. And it's wonderful. And then 
our job is really to be a hub of this for all of UCSF. And as I mentioned in one of the earlier lectures, there are 47 centers like the Osher Center. Because I was at NIH, I was funding these centers. I actually gave, was the person giving the grants out. So I know about the other 47. The one here is pretty special. There's an Osher Center at Harvard. It's smaller than ours and doesn't have quite the... Ours is all in one place in a new building. Uh, so it's, a little, it's very, very special. And to visit Arrow. And then there's the Osher Center. There are three. There's another at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, where Christina Orthgomer actually is, that woman who did one of those research studies. So thank you for giving me a chance to, to tell you about that. Thank you all. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.